A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is a satisfied member of the Agora Podcast Network. Your choice for independent educational podcasts. This month, I'm promoting this handsome fellow. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to an advertisement for Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions. Why is this record in my collection, and is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. The show exists because I inherited at least three record collections, some from random strangers, and I decided to launch a project to listen to every one of my records. In each episode, I will attempt to reconstruct where I got the record, tell you a history of the artist, place the record in context, and then tell you what I thought about the record. The extensive show notes will include links for listening along as we go, so this can be a participatory experience. So join me as I attempt to understand why I own a spoken word T.S. Eliot record, a record of Greek folk music, and at least five albums by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Thank you for listening to my advertisement, and I hope you find the answers you seek in your record collection. Okay, without further ado, on to the patrons. Today we have five more worthy patrons deserving of your honor and praise. First up, we have Peter, who has requested to be known from henceforward as Sir Peter, Defender of the Royal Laundries Against Pocket Lint. Next, we have Ben who has been given the honorific Sir Ben of the Lifeguards, undertaker of the noble quest to find warm bagels at Dunkin' Donuts. Up next, we have Scott, who, from this day till many other days, shall be known as Earl Scott, the unionized construction manager of Christendom. Up next, we have Mary, and there are several Marys in the world, so I'm going to be calling her Mary T. In return for her many services to the kingdom, Mary T. has been granted offices and titles. To which she shall be known from henceforward as the Reverend Abbess Mary T., official court writer of Body Limericks. And lastly, we have JL, who has gained recognition as Master JL of the Butcher's Guild, Notorious Vegan. Thank you so much to all of our patrons and donors, both from this week and from all other weeks. Your services help keep the lights on and encourage me to keep going. If you want to join their Surrey ranks, just head to the website, Wittenberg to Australia Podcast.weebly.com, and go to the support page. You can also go to the store and buy stuff from the shop that my wife and I share. You can also check out some of her stuff on the shop. It's very good. Or you can just send me an email, catch up on social media. All that stuff is available through the website. So go check that out. And now, on with the show. The right to place a crown on the king's head extended beyond the coronation to festive crowning ceremonies that are attested across much of the Latin West. The privilege was jealously guarded. In the 1120s, Henry I of England had worn his crown during Mass following the Queen's coronation. With Archbishop Ralph of Canterbury old, weak, and fast asleep, the Bishop of Winchester, 
had placed it on Henry's head. When someone nudged Ralph awake and pointed out that the king was wearing his crown, the irate Metropolitan interrupted the service and confronted Henry before the assembled prelates and magnates. Furious that another man had anticipated a duty he should have carried out himself, he went up to the king, just as he was in his holy pallium, a vestment bestowed by the Pope as a sign of archiepiscopal authority. The king rose out of respect for him. Ralph said, Who crowned you? The king excused himself, saying he did not know. You have been crowned unlawfully, Ralph said. Either you must take off your crown, or I will not celebrate mass. Ralph therefore put out his hands to take off the crown, and the king began to untie the fastening at his chin, and Ralph was scarcely restrained by the united shouts and prayers of them all from bringing violence to bear on the king's head. There is so much to savour in this anecdote. The king's inability to come up with a better excuse than pleading ignorance as to how the crown had landed on his head, the shouts and prayers of the audience which alone had prevented the prelate from literally tearing off said head, and Henry seeking in panic to untie the knot under his chin that fastened the crown to his head. Quote from Paths to Medieval Kingship by Bjorn Weiler, as read by Ben Clark from the Battle Royale podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we head towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 83, Medieval European Kingship Part 2, The Becoming. Last time out, we discussed what a king is. This did involve a short discussion of a definition, but uncharacteristically, we really talked in more broad terms. What was it that medieval society expected of kings? They were mystical and holy-like, but also human. As Davidic kings, they were expected to sternly enforce justice, but also be wise and merciful. They should protect their realm and lead in battle, but also should not make war unnecessarily, and it was very important to be alive. These contradictions and more were the result of the hybrid nature of medieval European culture, and were resolved by the use of the king's court. During this period, it was mostly a peripatetic court that was constantly on the move, allowing the king to live off the land, while also making in-person personal connections with widely dispersed noble families. At the same time, the blurring of the king's private life and public affairs allowed the queens to have a public role as nurturing and emotional actors whose role was to move the king to mercy, and also as dispensers of patronage in their own right, and builders of their own personal networks, all ultimately in the service of the royal family as a whole. Today we discuss how a person becomes a king, and in so doing, we will address the reverse of the previous question, what makes a person a tyrant? But before we get to that, we should probably have a bit of a podcast footnote. Podcast footnote. Last time out, I forgot to talk about my sources, mea culpa. I have been reading a bunch of books in preparation for this season, notably Power and the Holy in the Age of the Investiture Conflict, A Brief History with Documents by Maureen C. Miller, and The Investiture Controversy, Issues, Ideas, and Results, European Problem Studies, edited by Carl F. Morrison. The former book's introduction really shaped a lot of my thinking about the investiture controversy, but has only very little to say about the nature of kingship. The latter book is very old, and probably not something you need to track down, but it was interesting. 
Most important source for these two episodes has been Paths to Kingship in Medieval Latin Europe, 950-1200 by Bjorn Whaler. This book is really great, as it is pretty much spot on with the kinds of things I needed to cover in this topic. As usual, I'm not just reprinting the arguments in the book, but it was a very important source that clarified a lot of my thinking based on my earlier readings. It is well-researched, pretty well-written, and well-resourced. Also, and as usual, any mistakes are my own, and anything I got right is deeply indebted to my sources. End podcast footnote. The first and most obvious way you become a king is to just be really powerful, take over some land, and start calling yourself king. Ideally, you then dare someone to tell you otherwise while pointing pointy things at them. While obvious, this is harder than it sounds. At a basic level, such a king lacks legitimacy. This is going to come up a lot. This was a constant problem for those trying to consolidate power in the Scandinavian kingdoms, for example, or for the earlier emperors of the Eastern Romans and the post-Carolingian kings of Italy. Exceptions to this rule come in two flavors. Those who, like the Capetians in France, were extremely popular, or those who, like William the Conqueror, were exceptionally powerful. In the former case, the popularity of these kings was not enough to ensure an immediate consolidation of power, so it took three generations, and even then, the consolidation left huge swaths of the kingdom outside direct royal authority. In the latter case of William the Conqueror, William spent almost his entire reign trying to forcefully assert propaganda justifying why he was, in fact, legitimate, and even then spent years fighting rebellions with extraordinary levels of brutality. A part of this problem that is worth noting here is that kingship was already, at this early point, being conceptualized as more than just the ownership of a bunch of private property. To be sure, it was an inheritable office, as we shall see shortly. But as we have seen in the past, there are a lot of inheritable offices. The king's office was special, as the king clearly was supposed to have some authority in land that he did not directly own. There were a lot of permutations of various ideological justifications for this, but at a basic level, the idea of the king having two bodies, one physical and one mystical, was already being articulated at this time. In modern times, we have this concept that an office is separate from a person, and it's sort of understood as a pragmatic abstraction. You salute the office and not the man, soldier. But in the Middle Ages, this was articulated as an actual philosophical and theological reality, with pages of theory being written about it. In a sense, the king's spiritual body could not die, so there was always this spiritual king out there, waiting. Editor's Footnote the Byzantine Empire had a similar conception of the separation of offices from the person who held that office like we do today. When Irene became the Empress of the Byzantine Empire, her Greek title was the masculine Basilius rather than the feminine Basiliana. This is because the title was Basilius and it was not modified by the person who held the office. The office remained Basilius regardless of the gender of the inhabitant. To learn more, see my college roommate's paper, When a Woman Ruled the Romans, Empress Irene and the Practice and Presentation of Power in the New Rome. Link in the description. End editor's footnote. This makes things difficult if you are a particularly powerful lord who has taken control of a territory, let's say a diffuse set of lands in what we would one day call Poland, which has not had a king before. If you just start calling yourself king, it's probably going to be generations before people start to take you seriously. But if your holdings are not consolidated as a kingdom, they're likely to be subject to invasions and piecemeal conquest by your neighbors and repeated rebellions. So, what to do? 
Well, there's another way to become a king, and that is to have the title gifted to you by a higher authority. This authority is implicitly granting you political independence, though with the caveat that they have some loose moral authority over you and your descendants going forward. So this authority really has to like you, has to be somewhat afraid of you, or have some other purposes in mind. It was with this in mind that Boleslaw the Brave of Poland invited Emperor Otto III over for a visit. The occasion was the canonization of a German cleric who had been martyred while converting the Poles, some century before. Otto accepted the invitation, fully in the conviction that this event would solidify the German Empire's nascent claims over the region. The goal was for Otto to be the emperor over the Poles. However, things didn't exactly go to plan. When Otto arrived in Niezno, Otto was assaulted with the most sumptuous feast in history. For days, Otto and his entourage were weighed down with lavish gifts, plied with expensive drink and delectable foods. The halls were decorated and redecorated, even as Boleslaw gave equally lavishly to the German saint's shrine, and offhandedly, incidentally, in the uh, meantime between the entertainments, enforcing good Christian laws on his subjects, within the view of Otto, of course, with wisdom and clarity. By the end of his stay, the chroniclers say Otto was basically dumbstruck with embarrassment. He had nothing worthy of repaying the generosity of his host, and basically was forced by the sheer awkwardness of the situation to admit that Boleslaw had all the traits of a Christian king and thus ought to be his partner as a king in running the empire. And so it was that Otto III ended up crowning Boleslaw king of Poland. There is an element of fake it till you make it in this story. Boleslav just kinged so hard that Otto had no choice but to make him one. But there was obviously more going on. In theory, the fact that Otto crowned Boleslav meant that Boleslav was still his subordinate. Emperor outranks king, after all. In practice, though, this was a recognition that Poland was already functionally an independent country, and that Otto recognized this fact and probably decided that if this guy was throwing this much money around, there was just no way to actually conquer Poland. At the same time, the respect paid by Otto meant that Boleslav's new title was internationally recognized as legitimate amongst the other Christian powers, but it also granted internal legitimacy amongst his aristocrats and Christian subjects, since it wasn't a title he'd just made up, and in fact it was earned by how kingly the guy was. Gotta respect that. Of course, a good portion of this is probably also 10th century propaganda <laughs> by the chroniclers who wrote it down, but I think it gives us some concept of sort of the forces at play here. Podcast footnote. It's worth saying very quickly what happened to those who didn't have an official title. The rulers of the various territories of the periphery of West Francia were never able to legitimately call themselves anything higher than Duke. A few tried in the immediate post-Carolingian period, but the other kings of the area actually put aside their differences and led armies against them for the threat that their claim held for the new international order. So despite being at various times the richest guys in Europe, or militarily impressive in their own right, people like the Count of Toulouse or the Duke of Flanders were constantly having to live up to a fiction that they owed allegiance to someone to avoid getting invaded. There was always a paper-thin veneer here, at least until it wasn't, and they were eventually brought to heel by the central government. This is basically eventually what happened in the uh, Cathar Crusade in Toulouse and Hundred Years' War, if you want to look at it that way. This was the fate shared by most of the dukes of West Francia. Obviously, each country sort of had a different route that it went through. There was, of course, one exception. The dukes of Normandy went and got themselves crowned king by conquering a previously existing kingdom in the North Sea archipelago. 
After that, the king of France shrugged, said, it's a fair cop, and there were never any problems after that between the kings of England and the kings of France. End podcast footnote. Of course, the most common higher authority appealed to when making a kingship request was the pope. The Carolingians set the tone here, with one pope legitimizing Charles Martel's assumption of the title of the King of the Franks, and then a later pope crowning Charles as emperor. During the post-Carolingian period, a crowning was not considered valid without the presence of at least a bishop to conduct the anointing ritual, and the popes made a habit of recognizing newly converted leaders in Eastern Europe as kings with papal approval, thus legitimizing these new dynasties with magical king powers, while also ensuring that these leaders' families would consolidate the dominance of Latin Christianity in these new territories, because obviously, if you don't do a Christianity in your country, then the Pope's blessing is meaningless, and the Pope's blessing is a cornerstone of your legitimacy. Eh? However, this process was not just one way the act of doing a crowning had an equal and opposite reaction, as it raised the prestige and power of the crowner, even as it legitimized the crownee. After all, if the Pope could make the Carolingians from mayors of the palace into kings, and then from kings into emperors, the Pope must really be special and important and definitely not just the random bishop of a now unimportant central Italian city. Similarly, having a powerful and independent Poland properly acknowledge the Ottonian emperors as such helped legitimize the Ottonian claims to universal rule, even if it was sort of a fiction. Within a kingdom, being a person that did a crowning often came with privileges given by the new king that could be material or in terms of status in court, and if the king was well-liked, that bishop or abbot status would rise in tandem with that popularity. This explains the behavior of the archbishop in our opening quote, amusing as it is, but it should be said that this didn't just apply to the person dropping the crown on the head. There are other people involved in the crowning, as we're going to get to in a few minutes. And just to telegraph ahead, they also had their prestige raised by participating in this process. Of course, the reverse is true as well. If someone tried to crown someone and it didn't take, if you will, it was bad all around. If you tried to do a kingship and no one respected your claim the guy who was actually recognized as king would probably come and kick you around a bit. For the people who backed up your claim, at best they would look foolish for backing someone who was a failure, at worst they would share in the kicking meted out to the prospective sovereign. This brings us around to the last way a person could get to the throne. Inheritance. In theory, this should be the easiest version. The office of king was seen as something that had to move in a certain sacred family. Therefore, easy peasy, when the old king dies, the new king is the heir of the old king in that family. Right? Well, yes, but how do you decide on the heir? Primogeniture was not an inevitable normative state in Europe, and it was very much not standard at the beginning of the Middle Ages. In traditional Germanic societies, leadership could go to anyone in the king's clan. An older son was often preferred, to be sure, but it could just as easily be an uncle, a cousin, a second son of the king, anyone male, basically. The only real rules were that they had to share in that same sacred ancestor, which is like the whole clan, and they needed to be likely to be a good king. A good king would be, of course, all those things that we talked about before, like martial prowess or wisdom. These are difficult things to do if you're a baby, or in this society, a woman. So the ideal was that a king would die and hand off rule to an adult older son, and this was seen as normative, but the reality is that in the majority of cases, the king's offspring would all be women, or they would be a child at the time of the king's death, or they would be seen as unfit to rule due to a disability, 
Or even if the son was adult and healthy, they might be a huge jerk, and a significant portion of the kingdom might hate them or prefer their uncle or brother. Podcast footnote. Anyone who has looked into the dynamic of family-owned businesses knows that this is just statistically true for almost any family in modern times as well. Businesses usually get three, maybe four generations before the heir turns out to be a child, seriously disabled, or a business-ruining idiot. Of course, in modern times, it's increasingly accepted for women to run family businesses, or for healthy and intelligent kids to just not want to take over the business, two tendencies that probably balance out. Another key consideration is that in the Middle Ages, there was a very high death rate amongst male European nobles due to their fondness for dangerous sports and bad hygiene while out traveling. This would increase the chances that the heir would be a baby rather substantially, though against that is a tendency for people to reproduce younger in a time when a 12-year-old girl was considered to be of marriageable age. In any case, we have a distorted perception of this all, I think. And it's because of how the process of normative ideas work, really. This normative idea that one of the kids will be male and that they will be grown up by the time dad dies and that they will be basically intelligent, you know, it might be, you know, if you're popping out kids and you start really young, maybe that is sort of the most common case, but it's probably not the majority case. When you add in all the other potential things that can go wrong, it ends up being, you know, a minority situation. This is, of course, one of the major flaws with monarchy as an institution. In places like England and France, this was eventually calmed down and somewhat resolved by the creation of a set of institutions that ensured that the kingdom could survive without a king in charge for a few years in sort of a regency council type situation. Of course, many, many monarchies tried to do this throughout history. It's just that those two states sort of were able to make it work. This, though, would eventually beg the question of why we should all submit to the whims of a genetic dice roll in the first place, if the country can run without them. And that is why, here at the end of history, democracy is the only legitimate and stable form of government. All hail NATO. That was a joke, Andrew. Put down the guillotine. Not like that. End podcast footnote. As you can imagine, the system of inheritance of kingship was not without its flaws. In theory, it allowed for a deeper bench of candidates that would be a good king. But how is the society supposed to pick one? Inevitably, more than one potential heir to the throne would have support, which could very, very easily descend into civil war, as the people who supported one versus the other picked sides, drew apart, and started hacking at each other with heavy things. Merging the Germanic and Roman cultural spheres didn't really help here that much. Despite the tradition of primogeniture in Roman society, the Roman history of inheritance is what it is. The response of traditional German society was to make kingship elective. Be it the Witan of Anglo-Saxon England, the Althing of the Scandinavian kingdoms, the Diet of the German Empire, or the Parlement of Western Francia, the Germanic societies of Europe had various institutions where the aristocrats of the realm were supposed to gather and discuss the correct candidate for king. Now, when I say that the kingship was elective, you shouldn't imagine a democratic or even a republican formal institution. These bodies sometimes had other functions, as in the case of the Althing, but their main purpose in terms of the selection of king was to give a candidate something we might call consent from the people. It was understood that the ruler needed the consent of the ruled, but that consent was a bit different from modern ideas. In modern times, we have this sort of scientific idea of consent based on like crossing a 51% threshold or something like that, 
as exercised in this very rigorously defined process. That wasn't how it worked back then. The consent they had in mind was consensus-based and should represent the unanimous opinion of the great and the good. Obviously, poor people didn't get to vote. Obviously. But it's not like there was a defined property qualification either written down in a rule book. There were a set of traditions surrounding the process, and possibly more importantly, a set of goals. The traditions varied from place to place in Europe, but the goals were fairly common. So how about I go over the goals, and then I'll sort of describe an idealized process. Which again, as with the villages, the idealized process happened nowhere, but it's sort of a center mass that we can aim at. The overall goal of the process was, of course, to find the candidate who seemed like they would be a good king, capital G, capital K. Which is to say that they exhibited the most kingly qualities. Most of what we talked about last time comes into play here. The king needed to act like a good Christian, while also being a person who could convincingly lead in war, etc., etc. So the candidate needed to be an adult, a man, and ideally would have some kind of track record as a military leader and administrator that people could point to and say, look, this is a good candidate. In lucky cases, of course, the old king would have groomed an heir to take over by giving the prince military commands and administrative duties specifically to ease this transition. Indeed, kings were often very eager to set up their successors and would do things like make the nobles swear to choose that heir as the new king, write everything up in a will, etc. And if the chosen candidate was an adult with a track record, the nobility would undoubtedly follow these wishes. However, these measures were not guaranteed to work. We will see in our narrative several cases where the designated heir is a child or otherwise unacceptable, and the nobility will ignore their previous oaths to the king in the name of what's best for the kingdom in their minds. Podcast footnote. Yes, there is at least one case I can think of in this time period in the early Middle Ages where the king tried to pass the throne to a woman. Namely, Queen Matilda and her husband Stephen were the intended heirs of her father, Henry II. Not that Henry. That was Henry I. Henry II, uh, a few kings down in England. But it didn't go well. For now, I will just tell you that the subsequent period after Henry II's death is known as the Anarchy, and that it would make a great miniseries on HBO. End podcast footnote. So, the candidate needed to pass the sniff test as a military leader, but he also had to be convincing as a person of high Christian virtue. This part could be a little complex. Their personal life should be acceptable to the morals of the period, of course, but then that's a big qualifier. Everybody in the nobility had mistresses, for example. The key thing was that they not be too fond of their mistresses or flaunt her in public or things like that. The king should not be notably gluttonous or terrifyingly violent in an unlawful way. I mean, more than was normal. Most importantly, the candidate should not have had any major fights with the church. Now, a tithe theft here, a, some low-key looting of a church, not a big deal so long as it wasn't a habit and no major people in the church got really ticked off about it. Things got really complicated when you take into account the Christian values of humility and the Roman idea that the best leader is the person who least wants power. I actually forgot to mention this last time out, so let me talk about it a little bit here. Cicero was probably almost as important a figure as the Bible in this period because it was almost universally used in the church schools as a text for teaching proper Latin grammar and rhetoric. So pretty much everyone who is literate read Cicero, and a huge portion of Cicero is about how ambition is dangerous, and so the best ruler will be someone who does not want it. I could talk more about that, but that's enough of a correction for now. So this contributed to a situation where the potential king was not supposed to be seen to be doing anything we might call campaigning, like personally asking for votes or doing any detailed horse trading. Of course, he did want to be king. You don't get to be king without trying, like, really. 
except in very extreme cases, at least not most of the time. So the potential king would need to be out there reminding everyone of how nice a guy he was, participating in festivities, etc. And during the discussions of candidacy, which were a big part of the function of these gatherings, he would meekly say he was not worthy and discuss the virtues of other men in the running, potentially even in the room. This not only helped underline his virtues as a meek and unambitious Christian leader, it also flattered powerful people in the kingdom who could be potential allies later down the line. It did run the risk that one of them would come out ahead, but, you know, it's a risk worth taking. Meanwhile, of course, politics was then what it has always been. People didn't actually give their votes away for nothing, not in a situation where you were all sitting around talking about your vote. They expected something in return. So the king's friends and agents would be out on the side, meeting with the other nobles, asking about votes and making promises. This often happened in small groups, away from the main festivities. That said, there were expectations of the electors as well, because the other key goal of this process was to provide a king who is selected with legitimacy. And the succession was such a tricky thing that the merest whiff of opposition could signal that the king had some kind of issue and that choosing him could destabilize the kingdom. And since the electors were collectively helping to crown the king, remember what I said before that, you know, it's important that you have the crown come from someone who is seen as a legitimate source of a crown. So it was very important that the electors also be virtuous and powerful people. Just as you go to the Pope or an emperor to be crowned, you couldn't be elected by just anyone. A king who was selected by a bad elector could find their reputation somewhat tarnished. So the electors were expected to also act like they only had the good of the realm in mind, or face censure from the other electors and even the potential king. As a result, the electors would tend to ask for things they wanted in vague, universal terms. As an example, if a bishop wanted to receive the tithes of a diocese in return for his support, he wouldn't just say, if I vote for your candidate, will he give me those tithes from Eastern Billtown? He was expected to say something like, if your candidate is chosen, will he respect the material resources due the church by the laity? The candidate and his agents were sort of expected to be up enough on local concerns to know what this meant, or at least be canny enough political actors to deliver the goods when, you know, later on down the line, after a respectable enough period had passed, and the king had taken up his rule and everything was hunky-dory, when the bishop showed up and asked for these specific tithes, as they are the material resources due the church from the laity, the king would ideally, you know, be like, oh, that's what, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Material resources, laity, right. Finally, assuming the candidate and electors exhibited the proper qualities, the selection of the king could not just be put out to a simple vote, because legitimacy had to be absolute. It was very important that the selection of the king be presented as unanimous and enthusiastic in order to project the image that this candidate was divinely ordained and to avoid any whiff that there was going to be any kind of problem that people with grievances could latch onto. Now, if you've ever tried to pick a place to eat dinner with more than three people in the conversation, you know that enthusiastic unanimity is, let's say, rare. So there was a process that had to be gone through to ensure the proper outcome. First of all, everyone in the room knew that enthusiastic unanimity is what they were going for. So ultimately, people knew that they were going to probably get behind someone that they didn't arrive hoping for, but that once they were behind that person, they needed to go in 100%. This would all be figured out in the discussions beforehand, and at a certain point it would become clear who was winning the conversation. At that point, many people would simply jump on the bandwagon because they knew unanimity was necessary for the health of the kingdom. 
those who could not support the winning candidate or who were holding out for more stuff could make their displeasure known without completely torpedoing proceedings by packing up and leaving before the election occurred. Often nobles who knew a vote was unlikely to go their way in the first place would just not show up at all. Their consent was needed eventually, but it wasn't necessary to get it at the ceremony of the election. And breaking unanimity in public in the setting of the election would seriously destabilize the kingdom and demand an immediate response, without mentioning being potentially dangerous, though we don't really have any records of anything like someone dissenting and getting taken out back and beaten with a sock full of oranges until they change their vote, but then that's not the kind of thing you write down. Indeed, the election was just one stage of this process, and I think at this point we've covered enough of the goals to turn our attention to the process. What I'm going to present is idealized, again, but it's something like what occurred in most of Europe. The first thing that happened would be the death of the previous king. The inner court of the king would announce a time for gathering to select a new king, as well as the time for the burial. Often these were oddly long after the death. This was because the burial was an opportunity for the candidates to show off their kingly virtues in public, and because it took time to gather the nobility for the selection. Part of this was logistical. We have some very sophisticated records of the discussions of where these gatherings would be held, with one example noting a large island in a river was selected because it had many outlying islands tucked away around it where people could go and talk privately. So event planning has a long and storied history in European politics is what I'm saying. That said, a big part of the delay was that the nobles did not just drop everything and head for the conference. They really couldn't, beyond the practicalities. The nobles would almost immediately begin exchanging messengers to get some of the idea of who the likely candidates were, and begin to discuss with their retainers and supporters which candidate they should pick based on their own local concerns. The retainers in turn would talk to their retainers and so on down the social hierarchy. So, when I said it's only the ultra-rich who got to participate in this process, only the great and the good, there was some representation going on, it just wasn't a really formal process. Once proper time had been had for consultation, the nobles and their retinues, which could be somewhat substantial, would gather at the appointed time and place. They would then begin the process of discussion and horse trading while the candidates walked around pretending to not be candidates, glad-handing everyone and acting like they were humble knights, just happy to be there. Once the discussions had ended, everyone would gather for the election. People would start to announce their votes, and the king was expected to look shocked and horrified as more and more votes poured in. I did not want this. I cannot take so well if you insist. After the election was taken, there was the acclamation. This was when everyone would unanimously cheer the new king as king, and it was a vital part of the process. At this point, the king was considered to have consent, and the coronation would be scheduled. The king-elect would often spend the time between the acclamation and the coronation exchanging messengers with people who had not been at the election to try to get them on side. In any case, the king would eventually be crowned by a religious figure, anointed with holy oil, and presented with the symbols of authority. But that is not the end. Because even though there was, theoretically, no takesies-backsies, the first few years of a king's rule were unstable. They were basically a trying-out period. The king still had to prove that they were a good king by doing good king things. Usually this started with a tour around the kingdom to consolidate support. This consolidation was done in two ways. First, the king was supposed to go around to friendly areas doing king stuff, which is to say dispensing justice, correcting laws in acceptable ways, doing charity things, stuff like that. 
Often this was the period where a king would fulfill some of the vague promises they had made to their supporters, though it was important to not just start tossing around lands and titles lest he look desperate or weak and get accused of playing favorites or factionalism or anything like that. It was good form to make some people wait, but not too long and not all the same people. The tour also had a military function and usually involved an army. This is because the second aspect of the tour involved visiting all those places where the nobles had avoided or left the election. Here the king would continue his negotiations to secure unanimous recognition of his rule, but now these negotiations were conducted with a bit more urgency. The king had an army behind him, the noble had his, the noble wanted some stuff, the king now definitely had the stuff to give. Meanwhile, the armies were hungry and consuming local food reserves. Usually the recalcitrant nobles ended up agreeing to the king's rule, and then there was a big party where the local citizens acclaimed the king. Remember? Consent. Acclamation. Then the king and his retinue and his army moved on, and the noble tried to figure out how much food was left. If things came to blows, the king obviously had to win. Not winning would be very bad. But once he won, the king was usually expected to do a mercy. It showed his Christian virtues, and anyway, it was early days. The whole thing gave the king a chance to look tough, and now that he had done so, some leniency would look good. Look, you tried. Whatever. This process of demonstratively kinging kept up for several years, and you may wonder what the point of all this play-acting is. Well, the entire thing is a quest for legitimacy. This can be an ephemeral word, but it's deeply important for the proper functioning of any political system. Legitimacy is a feeling amongst the politically important portions of a society that compliance and participation in a regime are somehow normative. It's the right thing to do, or the way things should be. Or at least the way things are. The problem in monarchies and dictatorships is that the ruler spends their entire adult life building a system of rulership where the key component of that system is ultimately a sense of loyalty to the individual at the top, if not by the common people, then at least by those who hold the levers of power. When that person dies, there needs to be a reason for that loyalty to transfer to the heir, or the system will basically just attack itself. In the Roman Empire, in the earliest days of the Middle Ages, this is indeed what happened. The nobles would pick their favorite candidate, pull into camps, and fight each other until the last man standing was king. This cost a lot of lives, and possibly more importantly, undermined the ability of the society to stabilize and consolidate itself, destroyed resources, destroyed the economy. The performative kingship of kings in this period of the Middle Ages was a way to project legitimacy that would helpfully help win people around without having to resort to violence. And to some extent, it worked. I unfortunately can't find the exact quote right now, but Dr. Wheeler cites a study of Byzantine emperors that have suggested that those who survived the first few years had an extremely high likelihood of having very long reigns and dying of natural causes. Wheeler did his own follow-up analysis and found similar things were true for Latin European kings as well. The big caveat, of course, is that a very large number of kings failed in their first few years. This really seems to have been a marathon in which the young king had to do nearly everything perfectly to avoid an accusation of tyranny that could result in a rebellion which, if they failed to defeat it, could result in their fall from power. Almost everyone had to face down some sort of rebellion, basically. So what made someone a tyrant? We've covered a lot of this already, but in the name of completeness, let's run through something of a list of tyrants. A tyrant played favorites with one counselor or a family of counselors rather than favoring all impartially. A tyrant did wars and murders for no reason. A war was probably unjust if the king lost it, because God, so that could be used as evidence against them. A tyrant was overly proud and disrespected the nobles, but could also be weak-willed and let the nobles run roughshod over the kingdom. 
In a similar vein, we tend to associate tyrants with overly severe punishments. And that was there. But people in the Middle Ages also disliked kings who were too permissive of criminals. Some level of theft from the peasantry was just the price of doing business. But increasingly, the church did pay attention to how the people were treated and would complain if they suffered too much. A tyrant stole from the church or violated major church rules. Interestingly, once someone became a tyrant, the church would trot out its usual polemical ideas and start accusing them of sexual impropriety, which, again, this theme has come up again and again. It's such a literary trope that I wonder how it was convincing to anyone. But anyway, that's what they did. Needless to say, watch this space. It could be ridiculously difficult to balance these objectives, and it's unsurprising that the Middle Ages saw a lot of political instability. It also explains why successions were so fraught. It was a time when the bonds of loyalty that held the kingdom together in a, a, at least politically literal sense, were broken and needed to be reforged. It was a time when deals could be renegotiated, and so it presented some opportunities and threats for those of that mind. But it was also a time for fear and crisis. In a large percentage of successions, there ended up being a rebellion of one kind or another, though full-blown civil wars were more rare. Your average peasant may not have been aware of all these machinations and rules, but if things went badly, they would pay the price. And civil wars did happen. Okay, let's do a quick review. Last time we discussed the importance and sources of the Davidic concept of kingship, and today we saw how that met Germanic and Romanic traditions to create an elective kingship model in most places in the early parts of the middle parts of the Middle Ages, if that makes any sense, in our time period around the year 1000. The process was that when the king died, the upper levels of the nobility would consult with their people and decide who they supported for the king. The nobility would then gather, and a lot of private discussions would happen as the nobles narrowed down which candidate they would end up supporting. Meanwhile, publicly, the candidates would walk around acting like they were not candidates, trying to appear regal but humble. Eventually, a candidate would be picked, the unanimous election would happen, the king would be acclaimed and anointed. The king would then spend several years trying to act kingly and consolidate his rule while, in a kind way, suppressing rebellions. So, why does all this matter? Well, there's a deeper philosophical question. Do ideologies matter, or are people just driven by unarticulated real politic? I tend to think it's a blend. People will find ways to justify things that they feel they need to do to stay in power. But I also don't think that you can really read human history and conclude that humans are entirely rational animals. Ideologies shape the context of what people in history think are reasonable responses to events, both in terms of what they themselves think is right, but also in terms of what they think those around them will accept. So this somewhat detailed discussion of kingship was, in my mind, a necessary preface for this season, as it will help us to contextualize the behavior of the actors, which is not always entirely rational, but also not ideologically pure either. Next time out, we will begin to go through the story of the emperors of the German Roman Empire between Otto I and Henry IV by picking up the story of Adelaide. Remember Adelaide? Well, she's back on the next exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.